You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of what? Upside. Come on, sing it with me. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. I don't know, I'm off tune, whatever. Next year, all our troubles will be miles of what? Away. Keep it going. Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Last verse. Someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. Until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Welcome to church, everybody. It is good to see you. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes you just got to shoot your shot. Am I right? Just got to shoot your shot. Oh, it is good to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us, I'm Michael, and I do not sing most of the time. But sometimes you got to give Kirby a run for his money on stage. Just have to do what you do. Uh, listen, one of the most profound impacts my wife has had on our, my life over the past seven years of our marriage is she has converted me into a Christmas person. I was not a Christmas person before I got married. I was just kind of like, whatever, I'll go home, see the parents for the holidays. But I got married, and all of a sudden, it was green and red and trees and candles and songs galore. And I love it. Absolutely love it. I went from being a fake tree family to a real tree family. My real tree folks in here anywhere? Yes, let's go. If you're a fake tree person... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I know it's cheaper, whatever. Real trees are better. Uh, but specifically, like I've, I've, I've gotten caught up in the whole thing and I love songs like the one we just sang together. Uh, specifically, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, if Frank Sinatra and Michael Bublé don't get you in the Christmas spirit, you can get out. All right, let's just go ahead and put that out there for you. But two, uh, there's something, especially in this song, that I think breeds this, this recognition or it exposes there's this recognition in us, especially during this season, that something is kind of off, that in our lived existence, not everything is as we feel it should be. Throughout this year, uh, many of us, even in this room, have faced all kinds of troubles. Troubles. We faced all kinds of trials, all kinds of sorrows, all kinds of struggles. This year, many of us have gone through stretches, perhaps long seasons of suffering and doubt, of anxiety and cynicism. And the mantra of our Christmas season oftentimes says, but hey, listen, I know you've been through all that, but look, it's December. So let's just 
muster it up and have ourselves a merry little Christmas. Let's muddle our way through this together. Church tradition calls followers of Jesus to celebrate this season as a time of hope. But for many of us, what winds up happening is Christmas is not for us a spiritual discipline, so to speak, but a spiritual distraction. It's a spiritual distraction that often keeps us from putting our attention on what is going on beneath the surface in our lives. To uh, an excuse, so to speak, to have to, to avoid being honest with how we're really doing and what's really going on in our lives during this time of year. And so for many of us, what happens is Christmas becomes both this strange both and dynamic of happy and heartache. For many, Christmas is a bittersweet reminder of what you wish were true, of the life you wish you had or how you wish things were. You're reminded, perhaps, of those you've lost and those you've loved. You have this nagging feeling, like we mentioned in the song, that you're just going to have to muddle your way through this season again and put on a happy face, and maybe, maybe next year will be better. Or you just look around you. And it feels like every new story or every new notification on your phone, every time it buzzes, is some notification of impending doom or something that's just going to make you incredibly angry. And when it comes to Christmas, it's just like, hey, look, can I just have a break from that for a minute? Can I get one day without constantly being racked by anxiety or fear or dread or anger or whatever it may be? And what we're longing for deep within our souls, and what I would argue that the entire world is actually longing for in the midst of this season too, is something to fix our problems, something to make our world right, make everything going on out there and everything going on in here okay. And with that, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick, pick up where we left off last week in verse 18, and we'll read the next few verses together. So let's go. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So right out of the gate, we see that Jesus's origin story is a rather unique one. Now, I am very confident that this is a passage that you are all very, very familiar with. The story of the virgin birth is a very popular Christmas passage. Even if you didn't grow up in a Jesus-following family, it was likely that you have heard of this story before, but it just sort of sat up there on the shelf with Santa and roasting chestnuts and Buddy the Elf. Like it was all kind of a package deal together. And what I think happens, though, because of our familiarity with this, like, we just kind of very easily associate this story with the joy of the Christmas season, and we tend to romanticize it a little bit. But we tend to miss, what we miss is just how tragically Jesus' origin story actually begins. And so let me see if I can explain this a little bit to you. So uh, in Jewish tradition, betrothal was basically a period of time of legal engagement, all right? It was a time period where you would be preparing for marriage while also being considered legally married. So keep in mind, Jewish culture, uh, as most were in this time period, and as honestly as many are even around the world today, was a strong group culture. And what that meant was that decisions were not made by solely asking what is best for you as the individual, or what do you as the individual want? That's how we make decisions here in America. But for the rest of the world, and especially during this time period, that's not the way folks made uh, their decisions. They made decisions rather with, hey, what's best for the group? 
What's going to be in the best interest of the people that I belong to? What's going to be in the best interest of my family? And so with that, since that the, that's the perspective they were coming from, marriages were, for the most part, arranged. Your parents picked, picked out who you would marry. And once that decision had been made, they would legally lock it down by paying the bride's family a dowry or a bride price, uh, and a betrothal period would begin. And so in the eyes of society, you were married. But there was no official ceremony yet, and you didn't get any of the perks that came with being married. So they would never be alone together. Uh, if you were betrothed, you, would ne- you definitely would not be living together, and you most certainly would not be having sex with one another. So it was a pretty raw deal, if you ask me. Um, but this is a period. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, but basically, this is a period of time where Mary and Joseph uh, are still likely getting to know each other uh, because, uh, based on Jewish tradition, they were most likely teenagers. So Mary was probably 13 to 14 year old, years old. Joseph was a little bit older, maybe 16 to 17. But all in all, what we have here is two young people in the early stages of their relationship with one another, trying to figure things out and build towards a successful marriage. And in the midst of this period of time when there's no prefer, prefer, excuse me, proverbial hanky-panky supposed to be happening, Mary gets pregnant. So let me just ask you, how do you think that's going to go over? How do you think <clears throat> that's going to fly? Like, I don't know if your parents ever gave you the talk, but my guess is they never sat you down and said, okay, listen, when a man and a woman love each other very, very much, the Holy Spirit gets them pregnant, Right? Like that's not, that's not how that conversation goes down. And despite what you might think about ancient people, they didn't believe that either. Everyone knew where babies came from. And so Mary is an engaged teenager in a hyper-religious community who suddenly gets pregnant. Now, the majority of you are from the South, so you know enough of this to know that this is not a scenario that is going to go well for her. There's not going to be any hiding this. People are going to count the months from their wedding day to the baby's birthday, and they're going to readily know that math does not check out. She'll always be the one whispered about in the marketplace. She's going to be treated with shame and disgrace, not only during her pregnancy, but in the community, but in this community, likely for the rest of her life. And that's not even to bring up the fact that she's got to break this news to Joseph somehow, right? She's got to bring him in on the side. I mean, can you imagine how that conversation went? Like they're having dinner over at their in-laws, and Mary whispers over to Joseph, hey, Joe, I, uh, I really need to tell you something, all right? And Joe's probably thinking, oh, what? what are we, are we going to hold hands? Like, what's going to happen here? Like, what, what's happening? And she goes, uh, I'm pregnant. How do you think Joseph responds? What? How did this happen? Like, we haven't even touched each other. Like, what is, what is going on? It was Benjamin, wasn't it? I saw you making eyes at him at the marketplace the other day. I knew it. I'm going to go find him right now. And Mary has to step in. No, 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 no. Joe, it's, it's nothing like that. The baby's not Ben's baby. The baby is God's baby. I mean, imagine you're Joseph. I I would bet if it were me, I'd say, oh, great, cool, right. So my parents picked crazy. Cool. Good. Good for me. In that moment, what is Joseph going to do? I mean, what would you do? He's 17. He's got his whole life ahead of him. And his betrothed wife drops this bombshell. You probably wouldn't believe her. And even in the story, we see that Joseph doesn't believe her either. Let's look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. He doesn't believe her. He opts for divorce. So while first century Jews believed in what we would call the supernatural, which I don't even really like that word, they, they weren't superstitious in the slightest. He knows how biology works. He doesn't believe her. Yet what we see here is that he is still quite a stand-up guy. So now in this culture, adultery was a capital crime. And I know that's different from how we operate. But any kind of sex outside of marriage, including during this betrothal period, was considered adultery. Now at this point in time, the Romans had stripped Israel of uh, capital punishment. This is why Jesus was on trial before Pilate uh, instead of the Sanhedrin. So in Joseph's day, if you wanted to, you would hold a public trial against your adultery. And if she was found guilty, you would, get the, you would not only get the bride price back, but you would also get her dowry, which would mean that this could have been a very lucrative opportunity for Joseph. This could have set him up well going forward in his life, and it would have been a really public, really shameful circumstance for Mary. But what we see here is that Joseph's character shines through. He absolutely says no to all of that even when allegations of infidelity would haunt him and his family for years to come, which we actually see later on in the New Testament. But verse 20, but as he considered these things, as he was thinking about them, as he was rolling around in his mind what to do and how to do, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. <clears throat> Joseph, son of David, this is a call back to his place in the royal line. Do not fear to take Mary, <clears throat> excuse me, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And it's worth noting here that it took exactly what you would think it would take for Joseph to believe Mary's story, a messenger from God himself to tell Joseph, no, this is actually true. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, there's a play on words here that we just miss in English. There's a play on words here in the original language that our English language just does not see at all. So in Hebrew, the name Jesus is the name Yeshua, Yeshua. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's actually the same name as the lead character from the book of Joshua. Joshua was the leader appointed by God after Moses to deliver the Israelites from the wilderness and into the promised land. And the Bible absolutely wants you to see that connection there. And you might be asking right now, how on earth did we get from Yeshua to Joshua to Jesus? And it's a long story, but the short of it is, is Yeshua in Greek is Jesus, and then in English we just got lazy and went with, hey Jesus. But all that being said, Yeshua is a compound, compound word. Yeah or Yah is short for Yahweh or God, and Shua is from a root word meaning to save. Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves or God saves. But then the verb he will save is from the exact same root word as Shua. So the angel is saying, you will give him the name God saves because he will save. Now, if you're a sharp reader, you'd be asking this question. So who exactly is going to be doing the saving? Who's the one who's going to save his people? Is it, is it God? Is it Yahweh? Or is it Jesus? Which, which one is actually going to do this? Exactly. Save that for later. Check it out. Verse 22. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And what he's about to give us here is a quote from the book of Isaiah. And it's actually the first in a laundry list of quotations that Matthew is going to include throughout his biography of Jesus to show us his readers that though that the prophets were writing about Jesus, that Jesus is the one that they were foretelling. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is a Hebrew name meaning God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And this is the first story that Matthew gives us about where Jesus came from and how he was adopted into the royal line of David. But the question for us this morning is, What does this mean for us, specifically in this season of preparation that is Advent? What does this mean for us? Is this just helpful background info? Is this just a footnote or a nice story to tell our kids on Christmas Eve before they wake up and open presents the next day? What what is this here for? The answers to those questions would be no. Jesus' origin story, like any other, puts how you understand the rest of his story into context. In fact, it doesn't just put the rest of Matthew's story into context, but it puts the world story and your personal story into context as well. Matthew is not just telling us how Jesus was conceived and how he got his name just to give us some helpful background information about his person, but rather to tell you who precisely Jesus is and subsequently who you are too. And here's the truth, and I don't believe this is overstated in the slightest. Your whole life will hinge on who you understand Jesus to be. Your entire life will hinge on who you believe Jesus truly is. How you choose to live and what you decide to do are all affected by who you, what you think is true about Jesus. How you understand your identity, how you think about yourself and make sense of the world around you all hinge on what you believe about Jesus. How you choose to manage your time and your energy and your money and raise your kids, all of that hangs on what you know to be true true about Jesus. Additionally, your ability to endure hardship, your ability to handle stress, your ability to just make it through not only this season, but all the seasons without question will hinge on who you believe Jesus truly is. And so Matthew, in no uncertain terms, is telling you that Jesus is Yeshua Emmanuel. And that has profound implications for you and I. Let's look at them both in turn. Let's start with Yeshua. Let's look back at verse 21. It says, For she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now notice, the angel doesn't, say, doesn't just say, name him Jesus, for he will save his people. He doesn't just end there, but he adds that, from their sins. Now, for a first century Jew, this may have potentially been a surprising addition. Put yourself there for a moment. Like, put yourself in the world of a first century Jew. If you were a Jew living in the first century world, who or what would you have felt the most need to be saved from? It's not a trick question. Anybody? 
Rome, thank you, perfect, that's exactly right. Rome, Rome was the empire. Rome had conquered you and your people. And while you may have been living in your homeland, it was a conquered homeland. And I mentioned some of this last week. Many of the Jews who were living here still felt like they were in exile. And part of the messianic hope was that the Messiah would come to save his people from their captivity. But the implication here, the implication of the angel here is that the biggest problem in their life isn't Rome. It's not Rome. It's not oppression. It's not their current circumstances whatsoever, but rather sin. That sin, in fact, is their greatest captor and what they need the greatest deliverance from. And the point for us is the greatest problem for us, the greatest enemy, the greatest issue for humanity is not something that exists out there but something that exists in here with us. Now, depending on where you're coming from, that might be a difficult pill for you to swallow. Uh, As children of the Enlightenment, we have a deep belief that we come into the world, as philosopher John Locke would say, as tabula rasa, or blank slates. That we, we are born into and grow up in a world that is passionate about its belief, that we are born inherently good and any way that I or anyone else for that matter am off or wrong or miss the mark, it's actually the result of my surroundings or my environment, the parents we had, the education we got, the opportunities we were or were not afforded, the government or the institutions we exist in, that the problem with the world is not me or in me, but the problem is out there. And if we can just fix the problem out there, then we will fix the problems with the world. Now, there's truth and fiction to that belief, as with all things. There's truth and fiction to that. The truth is, is that every human being is, in fact, made in the image of God, that we all carry what the theologians call the imago Dei, that we are all image bearers of God, that if you're human, you bear the fingerprints of God all over you, in your psyche, in your mind, in your person, in your worth, in your beauty. You are, you are an image bearer of the Most High. And so there is inherent goodness and beauty and worth that you have simply because you were made in the image of a good God. But we are also a mixed bag. We also all have this bent away from what is right and towards what is wrong. And there's a part of us, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a part of us that is unmistakably and, uh, and seemingly unrectifiably crooked or bent. We are, in the words of the New Testament authors, enslaved or held captive to sin. So, for example, we'll say things like, you shouldn't lie because it severs trust and hurts relationships. But when something comes up that we want to get out of, lies will be the first thing that pop out of our mouths. We'll say that it's wrong to lose your temper on others. But the second our spouse or our kids say or do that wrong thing after a long day at work, it's like we can't control ourselves. It just is what it is. Or we'll say it's wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse, but when our eyes have the opportunity, they'll glance a bit longer than they should. And we'll excuse it because, oh, we're just human. But we can't escape it. We seem to fail over and over and over again. It's undeniable. But we don't like to believe that. So we blame shift. 
We go out in search of someone or something else to blame. So it's the Democrats' fault, or the Republicans, or poor education, or the Madison Avenue execs, or Cindy from work who's really, really annoying. That it's somebody else's fault, not my own. But the main problem, the point that the angel is making here and that the New Testament authors are making is that the main problem in the world is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. The main problem with the world is the human heart. You know, the Greek word for sin actually was not a religious word originally at all. Uh, now, now the word sin is packed with all kinds of religious overtones, but originally it was just a word that meant missing the mark, a failure to hit a target, a failure to be and do what you were meant to be and do. According to the Bible, all of humanity was made in the image of God to know God, love God, and reflect God's character and attributes, namely his love, to the world. That this is what we are made to do. That this is what it means to be human. And so when the Bible talks about sin, all it's really talking about is a failure to meet that goal. A failure to love and honor God and other humans who bear his image with the honor and love that they deserve. And so you see this reflected in, the, in uh, the Ten Commandments. Half of them deal with ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half deal with how you can fail at loving people. And the fact that they are combined shows us that the two are inherently linked together. That failure to honor others is deeply connected with a failure to love and honor God. So you can see that, uh, so you can see that this includes doing things we shouldn't do. So a part of it is doing things like treating things that aren't God like they were God, objectifying other humans made in God's image to suit our own personal pleasures, or causing malicious or physical, physical harm to another person. But it also includes things that we ought to do that we neglect doing, like living generously or caring for the poor or caring for the oppressed. Things that if you don't do them, no one's really going to bat an eye. Like no one's going to think ill of you or think you're incredibly immoral, but things that do miss the mark of what it means to love God and love others. And so in this sense, what sin is, is it's simply a failure to be truly human, where we turn inward on ourselves and seek to redefine good and evil for our own purposes at the expense of God and others. And this is the inescapable reality of the human condition. That no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put forth, you just can't seem to be the person you know you ought to be. Maybe you get on well for a while. Maybe you even do try hard, and it works out for a bit. But every time, failure, old or new, is never far around the corner. For some of us in the room, perhaps it shows up feeling like we're just too far gone that there's just no hope for us, that we've done too much, that God couldn't possibly love us. We feel defeated. We feel the overwhelming shame to have to admit again to our life group that we have done that thing that we just can't seem to stop doing. And we tell ourselves, man, I can't change. What's the point in even trying? Captivity. Captivity. And so in this way, sin completely disrupts our relationship with God and other humans, since at its core, it's a rejection of them. But the Bible also teaches that the problem with sin is much deeper than that, that it's not just limited to these things. And this is where there's partial truth in our cultural beliefs, too. That the result of sin in the human heart has been the fracturing and corrupting of the rest of the world, too. That sin's effects aren't merely limited to the damage it has done to our relationships with God and each other, but the whole of creation has been disrupted by our failure. The Bible would say that the world has been put under a curse due to sin. 
And a great way to think about it is like uh, what happens to your car uh, or your body when a part or an organ fails, right? Like if the brakes go out or your liver stops functioning, the rest of the car and the rest of the body is affected, right? Because it's all interconnected. The Bible describes human sinfulness the same way, that because we have failed at our original purpose, we are part of what went wrong and what is going wrong in the world, that our malfunction corrupts the whole thing, introducing into the world all kinds of evil that, would ne- that was never intended to be a part of it. War, oppression, injustice, poverty, sickness, death, suffering. And so it's not just that we need saving from the sin in here, but it is also we need saving from the sin out there too. And some of you know this really, really well. It's not necessarily the sin that you've committed that you have a big problem believing that you can be saved from, but the sin that has been committed against you. You have real trouble with that. The sinfully broken words or actions of another human being that has been done to you or said to you, you just carry them around like an inescapable, unhealable, irredeemable mark on your identity. That It will just always and forever be a part of you. In other words, captivity. And the greatest need in the world at large, and specifically in your life, is for someone to set you free. For someone to save you from the sin in you and the sin outside of you. And honestly, I think the holiday season exposes this in us. Like we long for something to set us free and to heal us and make us whole. So we get all, I mean, just think about all the silly things we do at this holiday season and what they actually mean from like trying to create the perfect Christmas experience, like insisting that our house look a certain way such that we make Southern living jealous, right? Or want to come to our house and take all these pictures, insisting that the holiday go according to plan so that we feel in control, that we all must be in this one place where it has to be as it always has been, that these people must be there and we must eat this meal. And if it doesn't happen, then I'm just going to feel like my holiday has been ruined. Or I have to give my kids the best presents. And I have to give them the best experience. Or I risk their love for me. Or I risk scarring them and sending them to counseling when they're older. I'm going to ruin their childhood if I don't make this just right. And listen, I would love to avoid the Black Friday example because it just really feels like the easiest one. But let's be real. Uh, I saw an ad not too long ago that literally said, why spend time with family when you can fight a stranger for a TV? I thought it was brilliant, number one, because it's like, oh, you get it. Awesome. That's, that's fantastic. But also, what are we saying? That I got to have this TV at that price or else. I mean, what does all of our consumerism around this time of year actually say about us? that maybe, just maybe, this thing will do the trick. Maybe, just maybe, this will be the year. Maybe this will be the year that ushers in the good life and all of my problems get fixed for a change. Yet every year, the torn up wrapping paper and the decorations hanging up the day after are just these stale reminders to us that that feeling did not last. That the fix was not good enough. And so we say next year, next year will be the year. Next year, all of our problems, all of our troubles will be miles away. Next year will be 
the year. And our captivity continues. And whether we know it or not, our souls are singing the theme of that old Christmas carol, O Holy Night, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. We're yearning for someone or something to come make things right, yearning for someone or something to save us. And when the angel says, you will call him, you will name him Yeshua, he is saying, this Jesus is the one to do that. This Jesus is the one to set you free from what really enslaves you. Which brings us to Emmanuel. That this Jesus is God with us come to save us. By calling him Emmanuel, Jesus is showing, I mean, Matthew is showing three very important things about this Jesus who saves. That he is God, that he is man, and that he is with us. And this is one of the most foundational doctrines of Christianity, that Jesus was fully God and at the same time fully man. This is actually why the virgin birth is so significant, because the virgin birth means that he was fully man, thus enabling him to be our true representative on the cross, enabling him to actually live the life and die the death that we couldn't live and should have lived and died the death that we deserved to be a fitting substitution for us. And he was fully God because he was birthed by the Holy Spirit, untainted by original sin, and thus the only one capable to save us from ourselves. That he is a God who entered into the world to save you, to bear what sin deserves death unto himself, to put death to death forever, and bring healing and freedom to all of those who are held captive by it. And Emmanuel is such great news for us. A way I heard it said recently was like this. It says, a God who is only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together and that we be moral and holy enough on our own to merit a relationship with him. And a deity that was the quote unquote, all accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would see no problem to rectify. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. But that is not the God of the Bible. The God, the God of the Bible is one who enters into the mess to heal it. Who doesn't stay disconnected from us. Who doesn't just let, ignore the problem as if it weren't a problem. But comes to us, to be with us, to fix what is actually broken. And I think this is why it's important to take note of the tragic way that Jesus' story begins. Because he is not someone who was born into privilege. He was not born into a picture-perfect family or into a life of ease or comfort or a life that was drama-free. Rather, he was born into a mess. A mess that would actually follow him and his family around for years to come. But this is the God that Jesus is. When the scriptures call him God with us, they mean he is a God who has been where you've been, felt what you've felt, endured what you endure. He is a God who has entered into the human problem to overcome it, to rescue, to heal, to restore, and set free. The Christmas story is not merely the story of a child being born, but the story of a God who tangibly dove into our pain some 2,000 years ago in a manger. 
I love the way that Timothy Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, says it. He says, Christianity says, God has been all the places you have been. He has been in the darkness you are in now and more. And therefore, you can trust him. You can rely on him because he knows and has the power to comfort, strengthen, and bring you through. You see, Emmanuel is precisely the thing that your soul needs, the love and presence of God in the midst of this mess. And some of you know exactly what I mean. When you go through pain or hardship, often the most comforting thing is another's presence and proximity, right? A text to let you know that they are thinking and praying for you. A meal dropped off just to take some of the middle mental burden off your shoulders. Someone who comes over to your house to hear and just lets you externally process how you're feeling. Someone who shows up to put their arm around you and says, hey, you know what? It's okay to cry. We are going to get through this. Presence and proximity. They are with you. They are a tangible picture that shows you that they're not going anywhere and they are here to shoulder the pain with you however long it takes. And when God calls himself Emmanuel, he is saying the same, that whatever you go through, whatever pain, whatever fear, whatever difficult circumstance, whatever sin, whatever struggle, whatever difficulty, I will be with you and I will bring you through. I am not leaving you out here on your own, but I am coming to you to bring you through it. And believer, what I want you to know this morning is that this is who Jesus is for you. In your pain, in the anxiety, in your depression, loneliness, in your struggle, whatever it may be, God says to you, I am with you. If you're experiencing anxiety this morning, worried over financial strain or how to get it all done, worrying that everything is going to fall apart, Jesus, as Emmanuel says, fear not, for I am with you. I got this. If I handled your sin, I can handle whatever you're going through right now. If you're feeling the loss of a relationship and feel the loneliness start to creep in, God kneels down to you and says, I am with you. I entered into this. I didn't stay up here disconnected from you. I came to you and I promised to be with you always until the end of the age. If you're feeling the depression and darkness set in and nothing seems to give you joy, God draws closer to you and steps into your darkness and says, I am the light that is here for you. That this season will not be the final story for you because you are mine and I am here. If you're feeling defeated and overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, God says, fear not, for I am with you, and I have paid what your sin owed, and I have risen to new life to defeat it forever. This, too, will not be the final story and not have the final say on your life. The Christmas story is the tangible expression of God kneeling down and saying, I got you. I got you. And as long as there's breath in my lungs, I am going to take care of you. I'm going to help you get through the night for I am with you. That is the good news of Christmas. Christmas is not about suppressing your sadness. It's about God with you to save you. It is not about distracting yourself with songs and sweaters or just going along with the crowd. But it's about God with you, a God who knows where you are, a God who has been where you've been, a God who sees you, a God who knows you down to your very core, 
all of your sin and self-interest to boot, who doesn't look away from you, but draws near. And so our application, our encouragement for this morning is really, really simple. Don't use Christmas to distract you this season. Don't use Christmas to distract you this season. It can be a very, very functional distraction, but don't let it be that. Don't be sidetracked by the thoughts of what will you get your kids for Christmas or how many days are you going to take off work. Those are unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Instead, let Yeshua Emmanuel, God with you to save you from your sins, press in and save you from everything you are trying to distract yourself from. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is really simple. Where do you need saving? Where do you need saving? Where do you need the rescue of Jesus Emmanuel? God with you to save you from your sins. Maybe some sin that you have been living with longer than you care to remember. Maybe some unexpected failure that this season has brought into the forefront of your life. Maybe sin done to you. Maybe sin done to you that you've just been carrying around, not, not bringing to Jesus whatsoever, not believing that any healing could take place. Where do you need saving? Where do you need the presence and proximity of God with us? Because the reality for you is whatever that thing is, God is only a prayer away, and he promises that he will save. Jesus did not just come and be born, but he died and he rose again to bring you freedom, and that is exactly what he will do. And so don't let the Christmas season distract you from that reality. Let it draw you in to that reality. Where do you need Yeshua Emmanuel? Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that you are a God who saves, uh, that you love your people so much that you came, you entered into the brokenness of our world to deliver us from it. God, we thank you that you have come to make right everything that sin has made wrong uh, in us and outside of us, that you are redeeming the whole of your creation. God, I just pray that this morning that you would help us, uh, that as we approach this season, you would help us to not be so sidetracked by all the little things that we're just so prone to get caught up in this time of year and to believe that, uh, and the things we're to believe are the, are the good things about this. And not that they're bad by any stretch, but, but just that they're not the main thing. God, I pray that you would put your grace and your mercy and your love and your presence in the forefront of our minds as we head out of here. That we would know that Jesus is firm and undeniable proof that you are a God who is with us. And I pray that that would change us in the ways that it needs to be changed, that we need to be changed. That we wouldn't be approaching this week as though we were just out here on our own but that you are with us every step of the way. And so, God, for the areas of our life where we need saving, God, I pray that you would lead us to repentance that you would help us to recognize that our sin is the problem and it creates this gap between us and you, but you will stand ready and waiting to forgive. And so whatever that may be, if it's something we've been hiding for a while, if we've just never even uh, for the first time come to you and asked you for salvation, that you would lead us into that space this morning. Yeah, we thank you that you are a God who is good to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, like we said, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.